1: It's Debbie Millman, and I want to let you know about Wireframe, a fantastic podcast
0: about creativity and design, and how they impact the world around us. Wireframe is hosted by my brilliant friend, Koi Vin. Koi is an internet pioneer, a principal designer at Adobe, and one of Fast Company's most creative people in business. Wireframe is a show for graphic designers, UX designers, illustrators, typographers, Artists, activists, and the design curious. One of my favorite episodes is all about Burger King's new logo and the role of nostalgia in design. Another episode is all about package design and whether or not you should actually keep the box your iPhone came in. Hint, I always do. Just search for Wireframe in your podcast app, like the one you're using right now, and we'll also include a link in our show notes. Many, many thanks to Wireframe for being such good friends with Design Matters.
2: If you are in service of your art, then everything's easy. And if you want the art to be in service of you, promoting you, if everything you do has to be successful, everything you do has to, you know, be quote-unquote good, and then you're always waiting for everybody's reaction, as opposed to really just engaging with what you want to communicate. What do you want to be doing? From the TED Audio Collective, this is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. For 17 years, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, Ethan Hawke talks about his writing, his acting, and the ups and downs of his career. I started doing things I cared about. And then it's, and then my career started going well again. You know, it's mysterious how that happens.
0: Yes, I know. Ethan Hawke is a famous actor and hardly needs an introduction. He's starred in more than 80 movies, many of which have made their mark in the zeitgeist. You've likely seen him in everything from Dead Poets Society and Reality Bites to the Before Trilogy and Boyhood. Ethan Hawke is also a writer. In fact, in high school, he wanted to be a writer before becoming interested in acting. Over his nearly four-decade career, he's managed to do both, and then some. Today, I'm going to talk with him about his latest novel, A Bright Ray of Darkness, and his Bravura performance as John Brown in the Showtime series, The Good Lord Bird. Ethan Hawke, welcome to Design Matters.
2: Well, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Ethan, is it true that when you were growing up, you had fantasies of becoming a merchant Marine? (laughs) That
2: is very true. Well, I was a big Jack London fan, you know, and I had a kid who lived down the street from me. He was a grade older than I was Nick and he liked Jack London and he was really cool. You know, when you're 16, a 17 year old just feels like he's got the world by the scruff of the neck, you know? And, and, um, he went off to be a merchant marine and live off his Jack London fantasies. I have no idea what happened to him. But we used to read books together and talk about them. And I thought he was a you know, I wanted to be just like him. But I also want to be just like Jack London. And so I thought that might be a great avenue to chase down an interesting life is to disappear into the seas and come back somebody interesting.
0: Because mm. I thought I was
2: pretty boring as I was.
0: Really? Why is that?
2: Well, I think I was pretty boring. I mean, I think most young people struggle with a sense of who they are and what they want to be. And you look around you and some things seem interesting, but most paths feel impossible to walk down. And I think the road of adventure loomed large in my head. I longed to have been born in another time period when the world felt wilder, I guess. But probably every generation feels that way.
0: Your parents met in high school, Ethan, your mom was 17 when she had you, but they divorced when you were four years old. And when asked in an interview, if their divorce scarred you, you stated, scarred, put such a judgment on it and then go on to declare that you were formed by it and made by it. And I I wasn't sure if that was a good thing or a bad thing.
2: Well, I mean, that's called the unity of opposites, isn't it? Mm. It is a good thing and it is a bad thing. I find children long to um, they long, long, long in their heart and soul, and every stitch of their body longs to believe that their parents love each other and that they were born for a reason that they were born in love, you know most of us long for that. And the advantage of being raised, you know from the point of, of divorce, you know from that vantage point, is that you see that the world is more complicated than that a little earlier, and you get your heart broken a little earlier, and that break has an opportunity to invite some wisdom into your life and, or, or at least some experience, right? And I think that it can make you stronger. You know what's that poem, Stronger in the Broken Places? It wakes you up to the idea that no one has the perfect life and that you were born in love. And it doesn't matter what happened to the band after they made your music. Your music was born out of something beautiful.
0: After the divorce, you alternated between living on the East Coast with your mother and visiting your dad back in Texas. And I read that this caused you to alternate between personalities. <laughs> in in what way?
2: Well, I bet you everybody... Came from, you know, going to mom's house, going to dad's house. They know exactly what I'm talking about. Oh,
0: yeah. My parents you know, got divorced when I was eight, you know, so I get it. There's
2: a personality you have that you think makes your mother like you better. And there's a personality you have that you think makes your father like you better. And for a long time, I thought that meant that I was the liar. You know, that, that I wasn't showing the real me. Who's the real me? And slowly as you get older, you realize that these people, they're all me. I love my mother and I love my father and I want them to see the best in me. It doesn't make me a liar. But I do think it taught me at a young age how malleable my personality was. And if my personality was malleable, probably everyone's is. And it might've been a, a very good entry point for the life of a
0: performer. Do you think that that gave you a sense that you were performing for them, for your parents? Well, I know
2: that... Marlon Brando would tell you that you're performing for me right now, and I'm performing for you. That what is our authentic self is very mysterious. We want our peers to like us. We want to be somebody respect. We want people to think you know positive things about us and all those things. And and we manipulate ourselves. And we do do a little bit of you know you perform for Grandma. Yes, ma'am. This apple pie is delicious. Grandma, you're the best grandma. You don't what, well, and you walk into your buddy's house and you say, Hey, who's got a joint? You know I mean? It doesn't mean you're like the worst person in the world. It means you're, you're, you're bigger than one thing. That's what I think anyway, performance, like the thing about divorce, we use all these words, performance makes it sound like you're, Oh, like you're not being true. I, I am being true. When I talk to my grandmother, I, that is who I, I want to be for her. And, you know does that make sense?
0: Oh, absolutely. i I read that while you were in high school, it gave you the opportunity to become an expert at fitting in. And I was really fascinated by that because, As also a child of divorce, I also had that sort of ability, that range of wanting to be friends with lots of different groups. I understand that you were on the school football team and the church youth group. You had a range of friends that included graphic novel reading geeks, theater nerds, punk rock girls, deadheads. How were you able to slip in and out of so many personas at that time? Because I do sense that it really was authentic in the same way that I felt that as I was slipping in and out, I was still being aspects of me too.
2: I think you can be authentic with different types of people. I mean, the positive, maybe without breaking my arm, patting myself on the back, is that, you know, I'm not inherently judgmental. I'm not convinced that I'm the moral authority on anything. And so I don't really have a belief that. Somebody's got it right, and somebody's got it wrong. And I think because I moved around a lot, I was really hungry for friendship, and I would accept it wherever it came. I think that's a quality I, I like. I, I, I I've tried to hold on to that quality. It's a quality that when I see it in others, I I, I like it. You know, um, one of the things one of my best friends is Richard Linkletter. and one of the things we've spent a lot of time together. He's a great filmmaker, and and. One of the things that makes him a great filmmaker is just a genuine love of people. If you watch Days to Confuse, you see he has love for every type of category you want to put somebody in. And he sees people with compassionate eyes, as opposed to there's a lot of movies and films out there that are always judging. He's a good guy, he's a bad guy, she's a liar, oh, he's the enemy. We're all caught in this huge spider web trying to make sense out of where we were born and who was our grandma and what our aptitude is for. And I've just never felt too judgmental, and I think that that helped me as a kid.
0: From what I understand, you wanted to be an actor since you were 12 after your mother enrolled you in an after-school program and you were cast in a production of George Bernard Shaw's St. Joan. Was that really when your first seeds of of wanting to perform were cast? I
2: think a lot of young people want to feel like they matter, like they're special, like they're interesting, like somebody cares about them. And one of the first ways you could do that is to jump in front of the class and dance or sing or play a song or, you know, or, or be great at sports or, you know, some way to set yourself apart. You know, and, and I think that I don't believe that my initial interest in acting came from a desire to express myself or some real artistic impulse. I I think it came from a simple desire to be noticed, mm. to be liked, you know, and, and I, I think that's a very dangerous fire to play with. But, yeah, I went to an acting class. I really did love it. I, I was pretty good at it, you know, from the my first class to we had a guest teacher come into the, it was at the Paul Robeson Center for Performing Arts. And this guest teacher came from a Carter theater and he led a little improv class. And I remember vividly in the parking lot there. And he asked me, uh, you know, would I be interested in playing Dunois page? I was like, well, do I have any lines? You know, he said, you have two lines. I said, then heck yeah. And so I got to put on armor and be a little page to a knight, his little squire. And I had, you know, a couple, I had to sneeze, which was very hard to do my, the dunois page sneezes and they know the winds changed. And I took that, that sneezing exercise very hard. But so anyway, my point is my first acting class, I got my first part and my life has been, sometimes I say acting chose me, you know, it, it, it guided me. I felt caught in a river almost, you know, early in my career with dead poet society, you know, that movie could have been a bomb and, Two weeks later, I'd been on a boat chasing my friend Nick, emulating Jack London,
0: you know? You got your first part after your first big audition for Joe Dante's Science Fiction Film Explorers, and Mm -hmm. you beat out 3,000 other actors. You co-starred with River Phoenix, and though it didn't do well, at the time, you thought God had found you. (laughs) I
2: did feel like that. You know, you... Kids, you feel like you're lost in this sea of prepubescent everybody. Like, I, I felt the thing I was hunting for. Somebody notice me. I'm here. I'm raising my hand. Pick me. Pick me. And I felt like I got picked.
0: What was it like to have such an epic disappointment at 13 when the movie didn't pan out the way you thought it was going to?
2: Well, that's why being a kid is so hard. You have no sense of perspective on my emotional radar, it felt like a helicopter fell from the sky and destroyed my house, y- y- you know. I would have dreams of going to see the premiere and they remade the movie without me. You know, River and another kid would be on there. And it was it was scary to be kind of sucked into the adult world and fail, you know, because it felt like, well, I guess I can't do this this thing that I'm kind of yearning for. Now, ironically, this was one of the greatest blessings. You know, when you talk about the unity of opposites, right? This is one of the greatest blessings of my life. Those tears I shed over that, nothing better could have been happening to me because all of a sudden I wasn't a child actor. I'm back at high school, being a nerd, trying to do my thing, getting a dose of humility and learning a more genuine relationship to what the arts is about.
0: You'd- Decided to give acting a second chance as a senior in high school, playing Tom Wingfield in your second cousin, once removed, twice removed, I believe, Tennessee Williams Glass Menagerie. What motivated you to try again? Well, I loved it.
2: And it actually happened a little differently than that. I was a senior, and the kid who was in the matchmaker, you know, they were doing the, I, I was playing soccer that fall, and, um, the lead in the matchmaker dropped out three days before the performance and the head of the English program came to me and said, you know, would you do this? And I said, sure. I learned the lines. I was the lead of the lead of the show. And I learned the lines in a couple hours and I went out there and I had a ball and I was good at it. I made everybody laugh. And I think I was really loose cause I didn't put any thought into it. I was, you know, I couldn't fail because I was still coming through for the team just by showing up, you know, it's like, there's a great, relaxation like no matter what I do it's going to go well because otherwise the show wasn't going to go on right it's it's it was a win it was a perfect scenario and once I did that and felt that laughter in the room I felt that high well then I really wanted to do it and then then the same English teacher picked uh you know it was very uncommon in high school to pick such a small play as the glass Menagerie, only has four characters and and to give me this great part that uh, they knew I, I really loved that play and I was really into Tennessee Williams as a kid because my family you know, was always telling me that we were related to him. And, and he's brilliant.
0: After high school, you attended Carnegie Mellon School of Drama, but you hated it.
2: You yes. come? I had really wanted my life to begin when high school ended. I The joke about the Jack London thing was very real to me. I didn't want to be a kid anymore. And the thing about being a senior in high school versus being a freshman in college is you kind of just go back to square one. You're just a kid again. And everybody's telling you what to do. And I had a couple strange experiences, you know, that are too boring to get into, but you know, just with fights and different things. And I wasn't in the mental headspace to learn. And I heard about these auditions because of my experience with the Explorers, they were doing big casting calls for this movie, Dead Poet Society. And I knew there were seven parts for young kids. And so I took the train back to New York and auditioned for this movie because I just had the thought that, well, if I can't get one of these seven parts, the way this is the way a 17-year-old thinks. If I don't get one of these parts, then I'm not meant to be an actor. Well, that's a dumb thing to say. But in this case, I got one of them. And I was able to have an adventure. I mean, going down there and meeting Robin Williams and having this part and all this responsibility and working with genuine artists. I mean, this was not Peter Weir at that time for people who are cinema fans. Peter Weir is a master craftsman, and I was I was his pupil. He spoke to us with uh, respect. I mean, we were being assigned Henry David Thoreau and Walt Whitman and Emerson and running little acting workshops and being given improvs and who's in our workshop but Robin Williams. I mean, you know what that's like for a young person? You can't unsee that. He's on set with John Seal, one of the greatest cinematographers and listening to the way that they talk about light and the frame and the way he listens to music and the, we, we'd watch movies together. The way he watched movies was different than the way my friends watched movies. And your, your brain starts to like little particles open up that had never been opened before. And you start to absorb, it was a real, it was an experience that I don't think any of us understood how impactful it would be in the mind of a young person.
0: I want to talk about one of the moments in that movie, despite it being so long ago, you've stated that one of your all-time favorite scenes is the one where Robin Williams inspires you to make up a poem. And you said it was basically Robin teaching you the creative act, which is what the scene is about, but he was also teaching you how to act.
2: There's a certain magic that happens in movies sometimes. And if you try to put it into words, what's so beautiful and mysterious about life itself. You just become an idiot by trying to give it vocabulary words that make sense. But when there's a subconscious to your work and when the subconscious is in line with what the larger metaphor of the movie is about, then you accidentally, through no credit of your own, stumble into something profound. And I was struggling with my own confidence, and I was struggling with this burning desire to contribute and to have a relationship to poetry and rock and roll and anything that made sense to me that when the world didn't make sense, and so was my character. You know, Robin Williams is in the height of his powers. He'd just done Good Morning Vietnam. He'd just finished Beckett. He'd been doing Waiting for Godot with Steve Martin on Broadway, directed by Mike Nichols. I mean, he was working with the best people in the top of his game. And it was him making me sound my barbaric yawp. It was exactly what I, I mean, it, there were just levels to it. And that's what the movie's about, is unlocking the creativity of young people. Funny enough, for people who are film fans, I don't know, the cam had just been invented. You know, like they were really excited about the fact that you could move the camera in an interesting way. And so Peter Weir and John Seal were very excited about this new camera toy and that maybe we could do this scene in one shot uh, or what would at least feel like one shot and and that puts a lot of pressure on the actors cuz you're doing these 5-7 minute takes in one shot and and all of a sudden you disappear you just disappear into the process of making something and all of a sudden he, they broke for lunch and i was like what just happened that was awesome and i'll tell you something funny robin like took me by the shoulder and he said, and the Oscar goes to Ethan Hawke, right? And I was, this is who I was back then. I was so angry because I, I didn't know if he was kidding. I, I felt so confused by that because he, he'd been nominated for Academy Award. That idea seemed like saying, you're going to win the Super Bowl," And it felt like he was teasing me because I just had this unbelievable high. I didn't want, I don't need any prizes. I don't need this, you know, I, I I wanted to be taken seriously, and I I'd think back and I go, God, it was just so was such an intense sixteen year old. You know, Jesus, get over yourself, kid. <laughs> but I remember that's how complicated and stirred up I felt, and, and I didn't know how to judge the feelings that were happening inside of me.
0: And so much of that is in your face. I mean, I just recently watched that scene again, and. I think that that cam, the way it's sort of going around you and as you're both spinning around and as he's holding you and as you're finding yourself, it's almost like giving birth to creativity. It was so powerful. That's
2: the way it felt to me.
0: Do you think that, that he was complimenting you, like looking back on it?
2: He's having experiences like that five times a week. I mean, I think he loved it. I think what he was saying is, wow, that was great. I mean, I think that's what he was saying, but he didn't understand how badly I wanted that compliment. You know, because then he runs off and he's at lunch and he's on a meeting, he's talking to his agent and I'm still just sitting there waiting for everybody to come back from lunch. You know, he got me my first agent. So I I, I think I would have to say that he he did. He did mean it well. In
0: 1991, you took your Dead Poet Society money and you used it for a down payment on the Sanford Meisner Theater on 11th Avenue in New York City. And you and Josh Hamilton and Jonathan Mark Sherman founded the Malaparte Theater Company. What made you decide to do that as opposed to hightailing it to Hollywood?
2: You know, why didn't I buy a bag of cocaine? I I don't know. Why didn't I buy a Porsche? I had no interest in anything but a life in the arts. And because of my experience with the Explorers, I was very dubious of the success of Dead Poets Society. I knew how fleeting that could be. And I knew that I didn't go to college, that I wasn't educated. I knew I didn't know what I was talking about, but I did have a tremendous amount of energy. Um, And I had 26 grand in my pocket burning a hole. And I was trying to start this theater company and we couldn't decide what to do and we couldn't. And it, it seemed like all we ever did was talk about it. So I decided I'd just rent this theater and we only had the rental for three weeks or 20 days or something like that. So we had to do it.
0: You also auditioned for the Titanic. But I have a feeling if you got that part, Ethan, instead of Leonardo DiCaprio, you would have had a very different career. Um, I recently talked to Claire Danes about the same thing. She turned down the part that Kate Winslet ultimately played. Were you upset at the time that you didn't get the part?
2: I knew I wasn't going to get the part when I, w- I went in for a screen test. I just didn't audition for it. I went in for a screen test and... um I knew I wasn't gonna get it when I started talking to James Cameron. And first of all, let me say that I don't think I could have possibly handled it any better than DiCaprio did. DiCaprio used that success to launch. I'm one of the few people who really understand how hard it is to work. He has worked in the major leagues for years, working with great people and doing amazing work. And he used that success to launch himself into relationships with major film directors. You know, he he was not frivolous with his gift at all. And uh, I admire the hell out of him. And I'll say that the reason I knew I didn't get the part, you can tell by (laughs) by this interview, right, that I like to talk, you know. They gave me the script and you couldn't get the script. It was so like, you know, they literally came to my hotel with an armed guard who sat and waited while I read the script, right? And I walked into that audition room and I broke his script down. I told him, this is gonna be the biggest movie of all time. I said, this is Gone with the Wind meets Towering Inferno. This is unbelievable script. And I started breaking down like what the references were. I thought I was so smart. And I watched his eyes glaze over. Like I saw him go, oh, my God, I'd never want to see this kid again. Like he if he comes on set, he is going to be such a bore. And my inner voice is saying, shut up, come in character, have some dice in your pocket, try to be a badass, sell him on that you really are Jack. You know, and I knew inside I should be shutting up, but I wouldn't stop talking about you know, it's it, it's a romance. No- it's the best romance novel of all time, set in Towering Inferno, right? <laughs> and I just I thought it was brilliant, and I loved the way it was written. He, he it was beautifully written script. I mean, it read like a novel. And anyway, I was over before I started. Dun, dun, done, done. DiCaprio was a star born.
0: Ethan, you published your first novel, The Hottest State, in 1996. And from what I understand, you were motivated to start writing because of how mercurial an actor's life could be. Were you afraid at that point that the acting roles were going to dry up?
2: I wasn't afraid. I was sure of it. Okay. River had died... I watched all the people who were like successful when I was a kid actor have terrible experiences and be like people I met at auditions. And, you know, there were other people auditioned for dead poet society, people that went on to have big careers and stuff like that. And I, I watched how all this success was awful for human beings development. And I, I come from a family that doesn't have a lot of respect for society's idea of quote unquote success. My father is a man of deep faith and that is his priority. I don't want to speak for him, but your relationship to whatever is the eternal is really what matters. And, you know, it wouldn't matter how successful you were if you, you weren't right within, right? I mean, that's that's the house I was raised in. My mother, you know, she's given me Wallace Stevens poems. She's given me, you know, Thomas Merton books. and the people around me wanted something better for me than to be on the cover of Teen Beat. But I was very restless. I really enjoyed the buzz of being around creative people and the high of trying to talk about why we're born and why we have to die. And And so I tried to write, because I kind of thought that the experience would make me grow, but what, what, what would publishing be like? It was a huge education. You know, my mother has a great line, you know, well, how do you want your obituary to read? You know, people in the moment might think, ah, what a dummy. He's publishing a book. Who does he think he is? But, you know, when they read your obituary and they say you wrote a novel, you think, ah, good for him. (laughs) You know what I mean? So if you get yourself in the long view of time, then you can deal with, you know, the ebb and flow of criticism.
0: Is it true that your mother read your first draft and stated, well, you're not Chekhov.
2: Yeah, that's what she said. (laughs) But, you know, my ego was not my problem. It needed to come down a peg, right? She And she felt that was her job. I, I bet if you were around a 24-year-old me, you might want to tell me I'm not Chekhov, too.
0: I read The Hottest Date back when it first came out, but I hadn't seen the movie, which you also starred in and directed. And so I watched it in prep for the interview. And I noticed in the credits, Richard Linkletter the director of your before trilogy and Boyhood and Dazed and Confused and so many other amazing, amazing movies. He was credited as the John Wayne enthusiast in the film. Yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah. (laughs) There's a part, there's a scene in a big party and he plays a guy who's trying to chat up a girl at a Williamsburg party, you know, and it was a, a monologue I'd always wanted to put in something. It was, it happened to me, stand in line at a McDonald's and this guy was <laughs> crying and and i and i said to him hey what what happened man are you okay he's a big guy you a know, big guy and, and he says didn't you hear i said hear what and he said john wayne died today and i thought that was a great story and i went back and told my girlfriend and i said isn't that interesting and, and she said uh well i'm a vegetarian <laughs> <laughs> and I, I don't know why it always I just thought I'm putting that in something someday. And um, because that it just struck me as like, all right, you know, I've, some people think something's important. What one person hears is not the same thing as another person hears. And and I love Richard's acting. I, I love acting for him. And and he took the part really seriously. If you watch the movie, which he's very good in it,
0: he is indeed. I had to go back to make sure I really understood what he was going for there. Do you ever see Slacker, his yes. first film? Mm-hmm. Anybody listening,
2: you know, watch the opening scene of Slacker about maybe I took the wrong bus. I think is the I think I took the wrong taxi or something. It's it's a phenomenal monologue. So I always wanted to get him back in front of the camera.
0: You appeared in six of his films, and you've said that the experience of working on Before Sunset exceeded all expectations of what being involved in the world of film could be for you. In what way?
2: Well, I pray that every person who listens to this or whatever has a moment in their life where you feel like this immense gratitude for being in the right place at the right time. And that you felt like it was so much fun to write that movie with Julie Delpy and Richard Linklater. To be in Paris, I was in a lot of pain personally and, having a place to put that pain was healing and not self serving It was in service of something better, greater. It was not navel gazing, you know, painting pictures of your tears or something like that. That film experience taught me a lot. You know, Rick and Julie are very, some of the most intelligent people I've ever come across. And they're also extremely educated in the language of film. They have an extremely high bar and they know a lot. And it was fun to be around them and listen to Julie and Rick argue. I've learned a lot. It felt like, wow, this is where I'm supposed to be right now. Like I got to be in Paris making a movie with Julie Delpy and it was a good one. And that, I mean, what else do you want in life?
0: Hi, I'm Debbie Millman. Canva is great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. at canva.com.
1: Designed for work. You're growing a business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles, and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.
0: I read that when you worked with Philip Seymour Hoffman in 2006, you realized that what made him so great was his experience playing smaller parts. And during the years that he was doing that, you said that you were doing films like White Fang and getting paid a lot of money and girls were asking for your autograph. And (laughs) while while working with him, you realized you needed to work harder. And I was wondering, harder in what way?
2: I watched uh, Nobody's Fool the other day, Paul Newman movie, Robert Benton directed. uh, Really wonderful film. And, and, And Philip Seymour Hoffman plays like this small town, deputy or something. It's just kind of an idiot little part, but, oh, he probably has 10 lines in in the movie. And I, I was friends with him back then. He worked so hard on that part. Who was that guy? What does he have in his pockets? How did he get the job? Why does he do this dumb thing? What's his thing? He was rigorous with his imagination. And, you know, I watched the movie it's years later and he's just so wonderful in it. And so, When he started getting bigger parts, he applied the same rigor to every line he had. And I had kind of a, hey, you know, let's get through this scene. I'm really looking forward to that scene. We're gonna shoot on Thursday attitude, You, you know? And I started seeing the possibilities of, there's a difference between the job of a leading man and the job of a character actor. And fascinatingly enough, the job of the character actor is extremely challenging because you have to facilitate the story. You've got a job to do, and that's your only part. Then you, you get laser focused about it. And then when you come back to a larger part, you see, oh, smaller stitches in the fabric. You know, you see how to sew it tighter. You see how to help your scene partner. And that's really the change for me.
0: Despite the lesson you learned from Philip Seymour Hoffman about working harder, you've also come to recognize that every time you tried to sell out, you fell on your ass. Your words, not mine. (laughs) I like these quotes you're finding. I I suspect that you're talking about your first foray into television, which I want to talk about briefly before going into Good Lord Bird, the Fox show Exit Strategy. What happened with that show?
2: That was my midlife crisis. You know, that was like I turned 40 and... Uh, I felt like I had to quit being an artist and and get a real job and hate it like everyone else.
0: Why? Was it because of having so many children? Was it, I mean... Uh, my wife
2: was pregnant with a f- my fourth kid and um, the economy had just dropped out in 2008. And I'd spent a, a lot of the previous years falling back in love with the theater. You know, that thing you asked me about, Phil, and smaller parts, you know, I got really interested in that and I started doing smaller parts and some big Broadway, you know, I did the bridge project, which we took Chekhov and Shakespeare all over the world. I did coast of utopia, which ran for a year. It's a nine hour play about Russian radicals and Hurley Burley. I'd done for almost a year and they're all big ensemble pieces. I mean, some of those parts are big, some of them were small. And, and while I was doing that, I was living, like I was making a million dollars a year making movies and I was having a lot of children and, You know, you asked me earlier, you know, when I when I was a kid, I I was very, very fortunate, you know, Dead Poets Society. I had this money. I just I got to do what I wanted to do. And all of a sudden I couldn't do what I wanted to do. I wasn't getting cast. uh, Younger actors were getting more parts and you start kind of seeing the world. And I just panicked, you know, and I love Antoine Fuqua. And we had this idea, well, maybe we can we can make a great cop show. You know, what if we did? Well, and I started bending my mind to, well, if Antoine would do it, maybe we could make this badass cop show and sneak one through. And I don't mean to knock that show or whatever, but it just, they didn't really let Antoine do what he wanted to do. The show never turned into the show that we had imagined it would be. And thank God it didn't happen.
0: You said that it ultimately resulted in your rebooting and revitalizing the next 10 years of your life how? I just started
2: doing things I care. I just, you know, I have an amazing wife and she's an amazing partner and she's not a materialist. She's like, don't do that. What are we making the money for? What Like she sees very clearly the kind of capitalist design that this country gets motivated by, the accumulation of wealth, the accumulation of possessions. That's how we define success. And we all just kind of get on this treadmill and hate ourselves if we have to get off it and feel like we failed. If we don't have the school that we want or the house that we want and she just wasn't buying into it and she's like let's start making decisions based on love like let's let's tap that's what you need to do and I started doing things I cared about and then it's and then my career started going well again you know it's mysterious how that happens
0: it's so interesting the arc of a career you've said that there have been three times over the course of your career that you felt washed up
2: (laughs) yeah completely
0: what made you continue on and how did you overcome that sense of being sort of over and done with or discarded? How did you find the way to reinvent yourself?
2: The world is not a very uh, responsible critic. I don't know what they're talking about. You know, lots of things that aren't very good make people tremendous money and lots of things that are staggeringly brilliant go unnoticed. I mean, through the history of the world and the history of arts, if you are in service of your art, then everything's easy. And if you want the art to be in service of you, promoting you, if everything you do has to be successful, everything you do has to, you know, be quote unquote good. And then you're always waiting for everybody's reaction as opposed to really just engaging with what you want to communicate. What do you want to be doing? And, you know, I, there's, there's so many churches in New York with basements where you can do a play. And, you know, there's something that really moved me. I read this obituary of brilliant actor, Paul Schofield, Late in his life, he was acting, acting at a very high level, playing big parts, but only at the church near him. And he realized that it doesn't matter how many people see it. It matters what you do. And I want to walk to work and I'm going to play King Lear at my church. Everything gets washed away like a sandcastle anyway. Who do you want to be? What do you want to do with your time? One of the things that I do want to say, though, is sometimes when I say that, people think that what I mean is I'm judgmental of other people's actions. And I'm really not. I I love all kinds of movies and all kinds of art. There's nothing wrong with doing exit strategy if you love exit strategy. You know? I'm saying it matters to be you and figure out who you are. And if you do that, then everything will take care of itself.
0: Ethan, let's talk about your most recent book, A Bright Ray of Darkness. Came out last month, congratulations. Thank you. It's a wonderful book. The book brings us back to a character you actually first introduced to us in the hot estate, William Harding. That really surprised me. Would you say that this is a sequel of sorts?
2: if i was forced to maybe but really it's a continuation of a thought in a way sometimes i think it's not so much as a sequel as a a reboot meaning like <laughs> yeah. uh, i was young when i wrote the hot estate and i was learning how to write and one of the things i really avoided and was ashamed of as a young writer is that I wrote a book, The Hottest State is about young love. And I'm like, yeah, I'm an actor, but acting has nothing to do with it. And I realized over the years that it would be really fun to have the cojones to write about acting, to not run away from that aspect of his life. Cause you know, there's so much superficial writing about acting, tabloids or this, it, it gets, but it doesn't really have a place in the literature of, there's not that many first person accounts of an actor on stage. And I thought, well, I really like writing that might be interesting. And so I, I gave myself that challenge to revisit that character in maybe a more substantive way, a hopefully more substantive way.
0: William talks about fame quite a lot in the book and really is trying to deconstruct it. He talks about flame as the black death and declares that we like to watch people die. So we put them on magazines and fan the flames of their ego. They catch fire and explode. But at the same time, the character pleads with the Lord to grant him the Black Death because it's very seductive, isn't it? Yeah. Do you feel like you understand that moral dilemma better? Do you feel like you still have that moral dilemma?
2: What's that St. Augustine line? Lord, grant me chastity, but not yet. You know, <laughs> right? I mean, it's like, it's like, you know, it's like I really want to be sober tomorrow. Uh, you you know, I mean, a lot of times when a young actor gets told, oh, you were great in that show, or they're not really sure what it is that you mean, right? They don't know themselves. They don't know the world. Like, what do you mean I'm amazing? Like your brain, when you're left alone, like, why do you say that? What did I do? And that compliment immediately turns into fear because you're like, well, if I do anything much different, maybe they won't think I'm amazing because I don't understand what it is that's working. So if I change, I might screw it up. So you end up like kind of keep being the same person. And we all know as a grown up, you got to keep changing. You got to keep evolving and and so you know like you said this thing about how to, after after I said being washed up three times, how do you reinvent yourself? Trying to reinvent yourself for me is a mistaken way of thinking the washed up thing is actually just a perception. Mm. I'm often so disappointed when I start getting offered movies again, good parts, you know, when it comes back again, because often the work that I do when I'm busted is the best. It, I don't, by the best, I mean, it's the most true to me. And when things start going well, you start getting decent offers and you can go to Istanbul and make a lot of, uh, you know, fun movie that everybody's going to see. It, it's very seductive, but it also takes you away from from the Self that comes out when nobody else cares. And so I think change is good. And I think the Black Death for me is being frozen in that formaldehyde where you're just trying to stay this thing that everybody likes.
0: The book takes us back to 2003. William Harding is getting a divorce from his beautiful, famous wife and is working in the theater, playing the part of Hotspur in the show Henry IV. And Back in two thousand and three,
2: yeah, the book isn't set in two thousand and three. The it book isn't? is set in an anonymous time, oh, more because there's okay. iPads and the internet in the book, and there wasn't the internet and stuff like that. People put that in there because they know that that something like that happened to me. But yeah, I'm using thirty years of experience and putting it in this one fictional production that's more like two thousand sixteen or something. You know, it's like I, I'm combining a a life in the theater and turning it into this fictional production. What was your question?
0: Oh, well, really, it was it was about how there were all of these similarities that you were using in this sort of fictional way and confronting so much pain, both as what it felt like to me as the reader, William Harding, a.k.a. Ethan Hawke. And yes, there are certainly differences, but it felt like you were confronting a lot of the pain that you shared with your main character.
2: Absolutely. And I love, I love fiction that feels personal. You know, there's something about the first person narrative. I think that I have found that using writing to make it more personal because my whole life as an actor is becoming John Brown, becoming somebody else that writing is a place for me to kind of explore what's happening in, in this rib cage. And so I do the same thing with Jesse. You know, there's certain Jesse in the before trilogy is this character that I've written. And there's certain events that do happen to me, Ethan, that I feel like belong in the universe of Jesse. And then I have this weird character of William Harding that like when I do something really stupid, I think, oh, that's where William, (laughs) that would be great (laughs) for William to experience. And they're exaggerated versions. They're heightened situations. They're but they are things that are personal to me. Like for example, you know, I was saying to you about the, the real healing power of before sunset, part of why I wanted to write A Bright Ray of Darkness is to explain to the reader that when acting is really working, it's working in this dance with the audience and the author, like what I was talking about with Robin Williams, it, there's this healing power that can happen in storytelling. Your whole life, right? Your emotions are always in your way. You're tripping on them. Why did I get so angry at him? Why did I say that stupid thing? Why did I start crying when my mom brought that up again? I thought I worked through that. Like what is, your emotions are always in your way. And acting is this one place where you can take these feelings in your gut and you put them on stage and you put them in front of the camera. And it's not narcissism. It's in service of this story. It's in service of Prince Hal or, you know, or Jesse and Celine or, you know, Jake and training day or whatever. You, you're, you're using this, this well that you have. And I thought that's what a bright ray of darkness is to me is turning something dark into something bright, you know, and, and how do you do that? So yes, it's all d- deeply personal to me. It's when I sit down with a pen and paper, this other thing happens. And so I just have to trust it and try to be disciplined with it and try to give the reader something worth their time.
0: William also states that the public makes a big deal of acting as if it's the celebration of the individual. And you write how the irony is when acting is going well, it's like the individual dissipates entirely. And nowhere in your work is that more evident than in your playing abolitionist John Brown in The Good Lord Bird, the seven-part Showtime series adapted from James McBride's 2013 National Book Award-winning novel. And you have an award-nominated performance as well. You also wrote and directed the series. And one thing I felt in watching this performance is when indeed Ethan Hawke does essentially disappear, as he does, and you become John Brown, there seemed to be so much confidence in your embodying this character, like your your effortless kind of confidence in disappearing as Ethan Hawke. And I'm wondering if that was even something you know, or was intentional, if you're even aware of.
2: I remember reading somewhere about a Football coach that was just insane about making sure all the players had their shoes tied right and their laces were aligned in the right way. And people were teasing him about it. And he said something about how inside every detail you can see the whole. And I mentioned this to say that I've spent my life thinking about acting. And slowly you start to figure out how to lace your shoes, how to wear your pants, how to learn your lines what voice and speech is, what movement is. And you don't you don't learn it all at once. And some of it starts to be, if you're building the right habits, starts to be instinctual. You know, like in reference to the novel, I'm a young writer, you know, like I'm an old man actor, but writing is still really young to me. I don't really know what I'm doing. I, I learned a lot on this. This new novel is, for me was all about the architecture of the novel. I started understanding what people talk about in regards to the architecture of writing. I, I started seeing it differently. That happened to me a long time ago with acting. I've succeeded, you know, quote unquote, succeed as an actor, and I've failed as an actor. I've, I've, I've had these experiences. And through those experiences, a confidence does arise. You learn that not everybody knows what the hell they're talking about. And you got to listen at the right moment and not listen at the right moment. And it's really tough to know.
0: What inspired you to make a movie about John Brown?
2: The genius of James McBride. You know, race in America is, it's, it's a wound that hasn't healed because we don't look at it, we don't talk about it. We keep wanting to move on as if, the, in the DNA structure of this country is a crime. And when we don't look at it, it doesn't get better. You know, my mom would say all the time, you know, one of the great failures of her generation is she thought that when MLK was murdered, that would be the fire of which we would restructure the zoning of this country, the police of this country, uh, the school systems of this country. She thought her generation would do that, that that's what they were marching for, you know, and then it all kind of quiets down. And then we think Obama's elected and we all like to think, well, now all this stuff is gone and it's, it's not gone. It's very real, but it's very difficult to make art about because the guilt, the fear, the shame and the anger is real, you know, and, and McBride writes this story. It's yeah. John Brown's kind of one of the, is the main character, you know, he's the event of the movie, but the narrator is this young Boy, who John Brown thinks he's liberating, and the kid thinks he's kidnapped, and he puts him in a dress. So at the first minute, you think you're making this abolitionist piece, and it's going to be about you know Dudley Do Right doing the right thing, like you're, and. John Brown's nuts, he puts a kid in the dress and you think you're talking about black and white, but now you're talking about gender and you think you're gonna talk about North and South, except John Brown hates the North as much as he hates the South. And freedom for a young black man at that time didn't look a lot better than what he was getting in the South. I mean, it, so it's not North, it's not South, it's not left, it's not right, it's not white and black, it's human, Yeah. you know, and it, it has all this love in it. And I read this book and I laughed my ass off. And my wife said to me, what are you laughing about? I said, "Well, oh, the good Lord Bird," And she said, isn't that about John Brown? And I was like, yeah. How is this possible that I'm laughing? And I really wanted everyone in America to read the book. And then my wife and I started talking about, well, maybe we should make it a movie. And then we met McBride. And he is one of the most gracious. And, you know, like you have that fantasy when you're a kid of what it might be like to meet a great novelist how, you know, like you imagine meeting Tolstoy or something, how wise they would be, you know? <laughs> right. Oh, I want to go out to dinner with Toni Morrison. She would she would be so smart and discerning and say the right thing. And and you meet McBride it's like, it's okay to meet your heroes. Like he's a beautiful person and he t- treated me with respect and he treated my wife with respect and he treats everybody he meets with respect. And I thought, oh, I want to do whatever I can to be in a room being creative with this human being. And I'm so glad I did. I personally, I can't believe that the movie came out. I can't believe we made it happen.
0: Well, it's a remarkable story for for our listeners that might not be aware of who John Brown is. He was a fierce opponent of slavery. He was hung in 1859 after seizing an armory at Harper's Ferry, Virginia, hoping to spark a slave rebellion. And quite a lot of people believe that this was the first battle of the Civil War. Ethan, you know what I was thinking about as I was watching it and reading about it? because I didn't know about the book before, why weren't we taught more about John Brown in school?
2: The answer to that question is Black Lives Matter. It's that's it's a big answer. You were not taught about John Brown on purpose, because if you teach people really seriously that the Civil War, what it was about, what was happening, how... African-Americans in this country were being treated and why a white Christian would wanna take over the nation's largest armory and demand equal rights for everybody way back when. And they didn't wanna teach you about him. You know, it was much easier to kind of rewrite history and try to make peace and try to move on, you know, and not really assess what was at the root of that big giant fight where so many people died.
0: Well, thank you for bringing this life to work, Ethan. It's it's a remarkable series. And and I, I really hope everybody listening can watch it. I have two more questions for you. Okay. The first is about the state of the world. Um, small question. <laughs> Broadway's been dark over a year now. I read that this is the least you've performed in a year of your entire life since adolescence. Are you doing any performance work at all?
2: it's hard i just did a zoom production of waiting for godot that'll be available for people to stream it's at the new group website john legazamo tariq from the roots wallace Sean, and i oh, all wow. did it we it's not just a reading of it we memorized it and perform it on zoom and it, it's it's crazy and nuts but it was a wonderful way for us to feel the actor in us you know i did a small part in robert eggers film this is kind of viking epic I've been trying to do my thing, you know, but it, uh, that's where, you know, perhaps this generation under, under me is, uh, might wind up being one of the most substantive generations we've had since, you know, my, I always think about my grandfather having lived, he was a kid in the depression, you know, and he never forgot the things he learned as a kid in, in that era. And I think a lot of young people are understanding how much, how the NBA just doesn't happen. You know, the movie theaters, theater, colleges, summer camps is so much to be grateful for that we didn't even know to be grateful for. And in a sense of our interconnectivity in the natural world, and I think might end up hitting them in a way that escaped my generation. And I'm hopeful that something good could come out of that. But it's certainly the state of the world is something to talk about.
0: sort of leads me to my last question In A Bright Ray of Darkness, you write that there must be some faulty gene in humans that motivates them to want to step out in front of a thousand of their brothers and sisters on stage just to be judged, and that we wouldn't do this unless we were hopelessly insecure. But as you were taking me through all of William Harding's theatrical experiences, I realized how much he took it for granted that we all took it for granted that a thousand brothers and sisters were allowed to congregate around the stage in the first place. And so I'm wondering if it's changed your perspective at all. Do you still think that it's insecurity as the motivation or do you think it could be just a profound need to connect?
2: That part of me that's writing William in that moment is not really my worldview. You know, that's the, the insecure, dark, broken character version of me, you you know, it's like a different entity. I believe in the power of connection and I believe that we all know it to be true that feeling seen is so beautiful and feeling unseen is so hurtful. You know, that's what's so important about diversity in our art forms and from all kinds of people in every walk of life, part of what art is supposed to do is represent our collective consciousness. It's our collective imagination. It's how we talk to each other and share our ideas. And it has real power. And, you know, for me, I love the movies. I love them a lot. But when you're at a concert, sweaty, and, you know, somebody rips a killer solo and you're dancing and there's this, and you know you never return to this moment, this concert, this day, whoever. I mean, I remember when I first arrived in New York, you know, I'd meet older actors and they'd be like, I was there. Great <laughs> car named Desire. You know, it was a Wednesday. I got standing room only. Brando was on fire. I think he had an erection or something. You know what I mean? Like the, the craziest stuff comes out of people's mouth because it, they were really there. They were there with the performers. And there's this magic that happens. I remember um, Paul Dano and I were doing True West the last, I was on Broadway, whatever, I guess 18 months, two years ago now it's all... Time is so strange, but in the silences, the the lines are almost percussive. You know, pop, 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 pop. You start to hear the percussion, and the silence becomes a part of the language of the play. So the audience is actually participating in our rhythms, and I, I would get high from that. You know, I mean, I, it would it would it would take us to Paul and I to new places, mm-hmm. deeper, stronger places, and I'm so sad not to be with that audience,
0: you know? Yeah, I can't wait to be back. Ethan Hawke, thank you so much for making the world a more interesting place with your work. And but
2: thanks for being so well-researched, for doing such a serious interview. You know, I, that's not easy to do. I know that. Um, so I, I, I really appreciate it.
0: Thank you, Ethan. Ethan Hawke's latest book is A Bright Ray of Darkness, and he could be seen on Showtime in The Good Lord Bird. This is the 17th year we've been podcasting Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
2: Design Matters is produced for the TED Audio Collective by Curtis Fox Productions. In non-pandemic times, the show is recorded at the School of Visual Arts Masters and Branding Program in New York City, the first and longest running branding program in the world. The Editor-in-Chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the Art Director is Emily Weiland.